Greetings, and welcome to the Upper Pen Podcast. My name is Dakota Van Linden, and today I'm talking with Bibi Barami about her book, Cafe Neanderthal. She earned her doctorate in cultural anthropology from the University of Pennsylvania, and her writing entwines anthropologic study and techniques used by creative nonfiction writers, meaning she writes wonderful books about people and places using imagery, scene, dialogue, and research to make what could become a rather long and dry research article come alive with characters and adventure. Thank you, Dr. Barami, for joining me. Oh, thank you so much, and thank you for that really beautiful introduction. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's great to be here. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> uh, tell me a little bit about Cafe Neanderthal. Sure. Well, you know, you, you really nailed it in, in my, my desire to bring a lot of things into play. I mean, it is a work of creative nonfiction, but it's very much founded in the scientific research of, of paleolithic archaeologists and paleoanthropologists. It's a travel narrative, it's a scientific inquiry, it's an archaeological adventure, and it's also a mystery that goes at the root of what is it to be human. And as the key archaeologist in the book, uh, Harold Dibble, would say, uh, seeing what is it to be human when you have more than an, an example of one, just us, but with Neanderthals as well, it makes being human much more interesting and broader. I really love how you, uh, in the very beginning of the book, you talk about how you get to educate the tourists who come to visit about what it is to be human. And that's just lovely. Thank you. That was such a, it was a funny thing, the, the crew, you know, because all of they, them were hardcore archeologists, you know, <laughs> trained for techniques in the field. And here I was, coming from a, a little bit of training in archaeology, but then going off into cultural anthropology and studying living people. So they thought, you know, what a great little niche for, you know, this tag-along anthropologist journalist to, to set her up to introduce all the tourists. You know, she's the one with the human skills, right? You know, <laughs> and, and it was great because I really then had to understand how not only their research was playing out, but how to communicate that to others. And then I would see their eyes light up with certain pieces of information. I was going, okay, we're tapping into something really good here. So it was a really neat opportunity. And it, it let me be more a part of the team too and really help them with their work so they could just keep digging. And it seemed like you really did become an integral part of that team. Like you, um, the book kind of goes through your relationships with people on the team as well. And it's really interesting to see it kind of develop into like, oh, hi, to like, these are people that I'm friends with, that I know that we spend all our time together with. Yeah, it really was. It was a very special team. And I know a lot of archaeological teams are like that. It's essential for the working of the crew. You, you, you are family and you have to get along to get the, the research underway well. But this, this crew is especially, I think it was the spirit set up uh, for really um, collaboration and, and being working well together that the crew directors, the, the dig directors um, established and most especially centered around Harold Dibble, who I, I don't know, um, many, many readers may not know this now, but two years ago, he, he passed away very suddenly from a sudden illness. And um, it, it really, it's still crushing us, you know, it, it, it crushed us then, uh, we didn't see it coming. But because he was such a team builder and he saw the gifts in every single person and really brought those out, you know, that we really have felt that loss. But that's really, you know, that's what was at the heart of it was this sense of we're all really doing something exciting together. And I want everyone to bring their best 
skills to it and just the way they you know set me up with you know <laughs> leading around the tourists who were coming to see the site um, you know he would find what you're best at and also push you on the things that you needed to learn more cool. so, yeah okay uh, before we get too far um, people are always gonna ask how you actually pronounce Neanderthal um, and I know that it appears in the book quite late, uh, but would you mind explaining why you chose to say Cafe Neanderthal instead of Cafe Neanderthal? You bet. You bet. It's a great question and a very important one. Uh, either way, whether it has an H or not, it is Neanderthal. <laughs> so that's one. And second, um, you know, it is traditionally spelled with the H. And it goes back to the old German spelling of the Neanderthal Valley, where one of the key most important early fossils was discovered of, of our close cousins, the Neanderthals. And, but since then, uh, German has modernized its spelling and they've dropped the H since it's essentially silent. Mm -hmm. But underneath that spelling change is also a, a very uh, important social shift that's going on that is separating those who want to spell it without the H. Not to say those who still spell it with the H are, are espousing an older view that was less uh, palatable to, 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 to the science. But, but in the old days, in, especially in Victorian anthropology, uh, and Neanderthals were seen in this, this whole spectrum of, of ancestors and debates about, you know, were they like us? Were they as good as us, as smart as us? And it, it, it's embedded in a lot of other Victorian ideas about race, which is also an artificial idea and that we're trying to dispel, but people keep reiterating it and it's very, very awful. But, um, and then that's one of the reasons why some anthropologists and Paleolithic archeologists started saying, let's drop the H to say, we're moving away from that. You know, there's no smarter than or better than. It is, they were their own special version of being human. And however much they are like us or not, let's stop putting it on a scale of hierarchy. And so if you see people spelling it without the H, they are very, very clearly saying, I am pushing forward to this more progressive a wider-minded scientific idea. So I love that you asked that question. <laughs> Very it's a big debate in my house whether or not you say Neanderthal or Neanderthal. So like now I just have proof that it's tall. Yeah. <laughs> you do and you have it now documented, recorded. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I really love about the book too is you humanize the Neanderthals as well. Um, and that's that seems really integral to me because they 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 were people they had complex thoughts and emotions and they went about their lives and quite similarly to how early humans did right exactly. uh, and they actually interbred uh, which people didn't think about <laughs> didn't think could happen <laughs> I know and it, it really shouldn't shock us should it I mean they they were our closest cousins. There's no reason why that wasn't possible. And they were human. I mean, look at what humans do. You know, we, we, we love to hook up. <laughs> it is our favorite thing ever. <laughs> yes. So not and only... Well, we love to eat too. Oh God, yeah. <sighs> Maybe more than even that, but <laughs> we do it more often. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. Now I just want bread. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So not only do you uh, characterize the Neanderthals, but you characterize France too in the area that you're in. And I imagine that's where your uh, travel writing comes in. Um, so how do you how do you go about characterizing the place in addition to the people? It's you know the French make it very easy, and so do the the the, the Spanish. You know in northern Spain where I also uh, work and write on um, the but the French make it so easy because the French more than I think any other people I know of in the world in relationship to their own prehistory it's like a very personal matter. And so the average French person on the street, if you talk to them about human evolution and prehistory and the sites in France, they know this stuff at the level of, you know, you would expect from a, of, of, of a college student, you know, who studied the, cor- the, the material. And so it's always a topic of conversation. And, and the French, you know, they, they really, they're, they're seeing it all. They're thinking about not the ancient technology and then their own technology and their own crafts and the ancient crafts, their own food and the ancient food. So it was constantly a conversation. And that's why I call it Cafe Neanderthal because I would just plunk down at any cafe table in, in, you know, one of the villages or towns in, in Southwest of France, especially in, in the Dordogne and in Sarlat where a lot of this is centered. And people would just start talking about, the prehistory of the region, which is one of the highest concentrated regions in all of Europe for prehistory. So that's another reason why they're so passionate about it. But they'd be discussing it the way they'd be discussing their grandmother's recipes, you know, and what they were going to cook for dinner that night. And it's sometimes intersected. And they would see immediate continuity with, you know, when they were hunting for porcini mushrooms, the set in the forest, they would think this is what it felt like to be Cro-Magnon or Neanderthal and getting into that mushroom hunting or hunting state of mind, that meditative state. So it made it really easy uh, to do, you know, they contextualized it and the life at the, the, the camp with the crew, the dig crew and all the French volunteers who were there with us there cooking dinner or at the dig site, you know, and the over lunch. It was, it was this constant rich texture of, of visceral sensory details that I just thought I wanted people who were reading the book to know immediately what it felt like to be there and take pleasure in the sensory experience as well. So your writing reminds me a lot of uh, Zora Neale Hurston and the way she wow. contextualizes. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, I love it so much. <laughs> But it just, it really does come alive, even for an ethnography or um, a research uh, piece. And it just, it does feel like a novel almost, because the way you write it, and the way you seem to really uh, give everything texture and color, and Mm. it just works so well in this context, too. Oh, this makes me so happy. Thank you. That is what I was hoping for. And, and you know, and then and the subject certainly helps because it is a mystery and it is probably going to remain an unsolved mystery. Even as much as we're getting more and more knowledge about who the Neanderthals were, there's always this unanswered thing that we'll never be able to fully know, you know, what was their life really like? Yeah. But it feels like you give them a new kind of life, right? So like Mm. as a writer, you get to embody them and give them characteristics that they might have other, like people wouldn't have thought about, right? So in the beginning, you talk about how there are seven bodies 
at this cave and they're small children and an mm -hmm. older man and a woman, right? Um, and that to people is like, oh, wait, they were, <laughs> they had ages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's really great. That's, that makes me so happy. You know, and again, I attribute the archaeologists I got to work with, like one of the other dig directors, Dennis Sandgate, who has worked very closely with Harold Dibble. He, you know, that came about when I one day early in the in working with him at La Ferrasi, the main dig that they were working on, I asked him to just walk me through where all the seven skeletons had been found in times in digs past, because <clears throat> they were reopening a, a, a famous dig, and um, so he he put that kind of flesh and blood on them because he said, well, this is where the adult female was found, and she was laying, you know side by side next to the adult male. And then here were where the different infants and the, and the children were. And, and that really brought their humanity immediately. And I thought, how do I open the book? And I immediately went to that day where he introduced me to the seven. And, and then I also thought about a good friend of mine who loves um, just page turning novels, especially mysteries and thrillers. And, <laughs> He once told me I won't read a book past the first page if there's not a dead body in it. So I thought, <laughs> all right, I'm going to give you seven dead bodies. <laughs> now you'll have to read seven books. <laughs> right, so a little bit of a you know dark turn on it. But <laughs> what is it about taking creative writing and anthropology that really interests you? Like how? Why do you combine them? Like you, you know, your interest also in the craft of creative writing, and now you're 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 studying anthropology, is you know there's a lot of good material in anthropology. There's a lot of good stories, and all my life I've also loved just good stories and writing. And but I I found I was frustrated with academic writing that it didn't let more of that story come out. You know the the factual story, of course, but in a way that would be easy to engage with people outside the discipline. And I think that's what I've always wanted to do is to, to take all this amazing rich material about what is it to be human and these different experiences through different times and places and get that to the public, you know, get it to a way where the public can also, because they, they are, you know, human, <laughs> you know, and, and they are the best readers uh, to, to get it out. Um, so I just wanted to find a way to bring all this stuff to life and, and expand the, the readership of fascinating material. It seems like um, the world of anthropology is more open to that now than it used to be. So like with Zora Neale Hurston or even Clifford Geertz, how they were, they were really good at describing scene and dialogue. They were kind of written off as, well, you're just, you're not actually researching. Exactly. It's so frustrating because in, even early on when I was doing this, um, as soon as you make complicated material sound, sound easy because you're reading it comfortably without having to stop and think too much, people think you, it is not as, as you know, intelligent <laughs> or complex. As, and and some, I started realizing maybe I should take it as a compliment. <laughs> I've actually succeeded. But now people aren't judged, you know, within the discipline, we're not so judged, you know, it's, it's like, so they realize, oh, actually, this is, this is good writing. This is using the active verb instead of the passive verb, <laughs> you know, 
simple things like that or using action words instead of passive words. Yeah. So. I think it's the good direction to go because now your information yeah. isn't just for the academy. It's for everybody. Um, yeah. And that is ultimately the intent of any inquiry in scientific research. It's not just meant to be kept in a capsule and never disseminated. It's supposed to be for expanding our knowledge at large of ourselves and the world we exist in. Well, not only that, but I feel like books like Cafe Neanderthal actually help young writers and young readers become really interested in anthropology and be like, oh, I can combine these ideas. Um, for me, for a long time, I kept them completely separate. And I would write about Lucy, the skeleton, <laughs> um, in my creative work. And then uh, I would want to just go read a bunch of ethnographies to find out more about the world. Um, so now I feel like I can finally bridge those two things. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. I think that's a wonderful direction to go. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I also love the posters on your wall back there. It's a very nice mix. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, how did you get to France to where the caves were? I, you know, um, I was actually doing, I, I had already been doing some research in France but one winter uh, about 11 years ago now, no, yeah, 11 years ago, I was doing some field work in a fishing village in Northwestern Spain. And I, um, I, I, on a fluke, just started studying French, which I'd always wanted to master more. And there was a woman in the village I was staying in Northwestern Spain who said she could teach me French, but she would do it through Gallego, the Galician. <laughs> <laughs> language of Northwestern Spain, which is close to. So it was very complicated. It was a very cold, windy winter. And she finally said, you know, the best thing you could do if you really want to learn French is go right now, just get on a train and go to France and pick a place and just stay there for, you know, a week or two or whatever. And, and we were getting a really bad storm in this village. And she just said, you know, it would be a good way to avoid the storm anyway. And it was a really bad storm. So Four trains and a bus later, I, I landed in southwestern France, and I had done a Google search just on things that I was interested in. One of them was prehistory, and I landed in the most the highest concentrated area in Europe for prehistory, and found at the last minute a place to rent, and I stayed there for three weeks, and I just started visiting all the caves and, and digging in and starting to do some research and going, I think I want to do more about this. And it didn't let me go. When I returned home, you know, I finished the work in the fishing village. I, I, I kept thinking about how much I loved this place that I landed in southwestern France, which is Sarlat. And I even wrote another creative nonfiction book about that experience called Café O. Yeah. And that's more about the life and rhythms of this part of France. But it was while I, I, I decided later, a year later, to go back. And just see what was there and if I could go even deeper. And it was spring, uh, May, and I was going to the weekly farmer's market in Sarlat. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw this form flip by. And I thought, I know that person. The last time I saw him was years ago in Philadelphia. What the heck just happened? And it was like, you know, the fabric of time and space just went over. And I, I chased after him. He had completely evaporated. He was with some other guy I'd never seen. But I found, it was, I thought it was Harold. 
Harold Dibble, the archaeologist, and I had studied with him in graduate school for, for a couple courses. In my first year, we had to do a core program and do the four fields of anthropology. So it's archaeology, physical anthropology, linguistics, and cultural anthropology. So I quickly dug up his email, sent him an email, and two hours later, he wrote back and said, what the heck are you doing here? You know, I mean, I work here. <laughs> and I said, well, apparently I am too now, and doing research. And he, he was opening up a new archaeological dig on the Neanderthal site of La Ferrancie. And so he invited me to dinner at the dig, the camp grant house, the dig house, and um, then invited me to go visit a couple of the sites he had worked on, and then La Ferrancie, which he was just opening up. And I wound up uh, writing a feature story about his work there, and especially La Ferrancie. And he liked it so much that he invited me back and said, I think you should think about writing a book. <laughs> and so, you know, it went from a fascination with caves and visiting it like everyone else, you know, buying the ticket, getting a reservation and being led on a tour to suddenly being deep, deep, thick in the caves and especially that one particular cave. Uh, and it was just, I just feel so lucky. It was just a matter of total serendipity that I happened to be in the market the day he flitted past. If I had missed that moment, <laughs> I would have missed this huge opening. You just, just never know. Life can be so magical if you just, you know, go and find out what's there and just <laughs> take the serendipity. <laughs> So that kind of leads into this next question that I have. Um, so people always ask in creative writing, how do you remember these things? How do you remember conversations that you had or what somebody was wearing or how they sounded? Um, I imagine you took notes or you recorded conversations. Uh, both, in this case, case both. And you know, this is where the training in anthropology is really terrific. Because when I was in graduate school and going off to do field work, you know, we had to study techniques in field work. And one of them was, you know, how to appropriately record and document what people are saying and what people are doing. And I was going off to do field work in Morocco and in a context where um, not all conversations was it acceptable to record them. And sometimes, you know, they didn't even want the verbatim, you know, you know, they didn't want me to sit there and taking notes, let alone having a recorder. So I got into the habit of, you know, I hear, hearing a conversation or, or being a part of a conversation. And then as soon as we said goodbye and, you know, everyone dispersed, I would just sit down and write what I remembered, you know, and it was just like, and I, I started creating these sort of mnemonic devices to remember, like, I need to remember that. As, as close to what that person said as possible. And then of course you also learn that if they didn't give you permission, you need to, you know, create, pr protect their privacy, change their name, you know, or if it's really sensitive, don't even publish it, but at least you have it for your personal notes to understand the fuller cu cultural context of what just happened, to be able to at least write about it without mentioning names or, <laughs> so, so I, those, those skills of, field notes, taking field notes. Um, and this was, I was doing field work when uh, email was almost there. We were still faxing things, you know, I was faxing letters to, <laughs> to my husband back in the States and, and using the post. But I also, I had a, a Corona Smith typewriter 
and I went to the field. I had I knew that they had a typewriter there that I could borrow. So I went into the field with typewriter ribbons. You know, <laughs> that was like my my technological you know equipment kit. So uh, and a lot of notebooks to write things by hand. And I think there's something too about writing things by hand. It there's it's it's almost like you remember more. It's coming through the brain, what you just experienced through the hand. It's a visceral, physical thing. So, yeah, another great question. Yeah. So, so definitely trying to, to, to get as accurately as possible what just happened as quickly as possible after it happened. But then for Cafe Neanderthal, you know, I had carte blanche. You know, everyone knew I was, what I was there to do. And they, they just saw my Zoom recorder, you know, on its pedestal everywhere. And they just knew, okay, she's recording, you know. And sometimes they'd mess with me, you know, when I had my back turned. They'd oh. whisper the <laughs> And I'd tell them, look, if you didn't say off the record, it's official. <laughs> they were fun. They were That's fun. great. Yeah. <laughs> um, I really think that all creative nonfiction writers should take some classes in anthropology or like anthropological methods because it's just so wonderful and like it trains you so well to get in that state of mind. It does, you know, and I think there's this one creative writing exercise that long ago, I don't know who taught it to me, but I wish I could remember. Maybe you can tell me if it's just a classic, you know, part of the toolkit, but it's to just go in the days that you can safely go to a cafe yeah. and just start, you know, by writing the snippets of conversation that come into your mind as you're there, but also write about the, 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 the physical sensory experience of being there, the colors, the smells, the sounds, the feeling, you know, the mood, all these sorts of things. And just like field notes, write what's going on in that cafe. And then sometimes, you know, a, a, a line will pass through your ear and that's all you hear and it unlocks a whole story. But now you have the context to embed the story in and you have your notes. So it's... That is a very popular uh, exercise. I don't know who it came from, but whoever they were, were a genius. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Maybe they took biology course. Who knows? <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, I always try and encourage everybody I know. I'm like, oh, just go take an anthropology course. <laughs> It'll help your writing as much as, like more than you think it ever could. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. What are you working on right now? Right now I'm working on, uh, it, it's, it's another one of these sort of melding genres, but it, it is, you know, very foundational in, as a travel narrative. And it's a mystery uh, that's, it's a, it's a nonfiction, creative nonfiction, but it's tracing a mystery set on the Camino de Santiago, the pilgrimage route across Northern Spain to Santiago de Compostela, where the purported bones of St. James the Greater are buried. And that's one of the areas I've long written on. Like I had a, a guidebook recently come out. Um, wait, wait, here it is. <laughs> <laughs> just came out okay um, on the Camino de Santiago and while I in in the over the years that I've been researching the this pilgrimage route every now and then I would come upon a pilgrim especially if they most of the time they were from France or Spain or from Germany and they would tell me about this more esoteric pilgrimage that they were on and that they were following the signs of the goose and I started saying what <laughs> signs of the goose but then it just I kept hearing about it and then I started hearing that it was connected to the game of the goose which is this children's board game in Europe very popular in Europe 
we might know it more as snakes and ladders, this oh. idea of throwing dice and moving your piece and having ordeals or gifts, you know, along as you move your piece along, this kind of labyrinth-like board game. And, and I thought, well, that's interesting. How in, and then other people said it's a, it's a roadmap to the Camino to, that's is this esoteric map for esoteric or spiritual experience. And you find certain churches that have certain clues. And, you know, and I got more and more interested. And the more I started digging into it, the deeper it went and the more and more source material I started finding that's actually backing up this, this idea. And that, that there was this medieval, uh, deeper, esoteric experience that a pilgrim could have, and that modern pilgrims were kind of bringing it up and re-resurrecting it. But then the anthropologist in me started saying, but still, nobody's explaining what does this goose mean? You know, what is, why the goose? And when I went down that rabbit hole, I started finding that it was connecting to a lot of European folklore including our stories from Mother Goose. And so that's the mystery I'm tracing, is how does the goose become this guardian and guide on a pilgrimage route? And what is it talking about? And I won't say too much more there, except I can hint that it has more to do with the Christian road. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and older ideas that were already present in, in, in native European cultures that sort of preserved their earlier pagan ideas uh, through through this these their stories as well as this path. I think that's one of my favorite parts about folklore is it gets adopted into the new culture um, and then it it changes like the goose has changed, um, but it it's just like oh there's there is a big rabbit hole that you could follow for miles and miles. <laughs> It is amazing, isn't it? I mean, when we, we think about folklore, we think, you know, a lot of people, I would say, think stories and maybe, yeah, sure, myth, but they don't, when you start really looking at folklore, you start realizing that it's like the oral and written preservation of a lot of old ideas and ancestral continuities that we keep carrying on into the next generation. And it is, it's like, you start unraveling this thread, this yarn, and, and you just, you know, you start following it, and it just, it goes way, way back, but it has a continuity, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. How do you know when to stop? Because uh, this could go forever. It, it can, <laughs> absolutely, and, and I've had that question many times, especially on this project, because um, I'm finding yet more stories, but there's a point where I find that they still kind of start they're starting to cycle back to the same general category and then i'm finding okay that's a variation of this story that we've already had you know so they all kind of seem related over here in this cluster and these all in this cluster and then there's this intersection point and then when i start feeling like okay i have this the the puzzle picture is now filling out uh, i can keep keep going and keep reading which i still do but I hold to the picture that I, I, you know, that that's fleshed itself out. And that's when I realize I can start writing. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but then you'll have like the mystery aspect, I imagine, where there'll be a gaping hole that you kind of have to write around. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's kind of like with, with Cafe Neanderthal, you know, <laughs> it's to, to take the person into the mystery as, as deeply as you can 
with all the possibilities. And those things that we can't answer give the reader all the information and the tools and the adventure of being with on this journey to come to their own idea of what they think might be the answer to that. Um, but, but most importantly, giving them everything in a way that is coherent and has that, you know, the classic story arc and the, the beginning, middle and end. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Bibi Barami for joining me today. Well, it's been such a pleasure. I really enjoyed our conversation. And thank you for watching. If you haven't read Cafe Neanderthal yet, I highly suggest that you pick it up. Have a great day.